Last weekend at UFC Fight Night 185, we received a reminder that the Ultimate Fighting Championship's heavyweight division is stronger than it has been in years, maybe as strong as, as it has ever been. We witnessed a brutal, shocking knockout in the main event, possibly minting a new title challenger in Derek Lewis. But even better news for the division as a whole is that there were three other heavyweight bouts on the card, and in each of them, the winner was a rising prospect, the oldest of them just 31 years old, all of whom joined the UFC within the last two years. In two of those three fights, the loser was a former top 10 fixture on the wrong side of his 40th birthday. It was a night that we may look back on a few years from now as a changing of the guard moment in heavyweight MMA. This weekend at UFC Fight Night 186, or UFC Vegas 20, we'll get the epilogue to that epic story, or the perfect dessert after a great meal. The main event features in Jairzinho Rosenstrike and Surreal Gun, two heavyweight contenders who are young, in fight terms as well as years, and have taken the UFC by storm in the last year or two. Supporting them is a 12-fight card that has been in constant flux over the past week, but is taking shape with plenty of highly touted prospects, as well as veterans with something to prove. Good evening and welcome to the Sherdog Radio Network preview for UFC Fight Night 186, Rosenstrike vs. Gone. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of Sherdog.com, and with me is Keith Schillen, executive producer of the Loudmouth MMA Network, as well as the Sherdog Radio Network, and a host and creator of numerous shows for Sherdog Radio, including MMA Past, Present, and Future, and of course, the Schillen and Duffy Show. Keith, how are you doing this evening? Man, I'm excellent, man. I, I'm excited about this card. I think the main event is really intriguing. Uh, you know, we're on a similar theme as we did last week where, you know, two big heavyweights with big power. Um, that's an intriguing matchup. The, the co-main event is something I'm interested in. I think it's an exciting matchup. I think it uh, does a lot for the division. And then sprinkled out through the whole entire card is we have a lot of contender series, you know, newcomers or, you know, kind of, kind of new to the UFC. And then we have, I think we have three female matchups that are all, you know, some relevance. So this is a good card. I agree uh, for a card that had 14 fights three days ago and was just shedding fights and getting rearranged left and right. What has shaken out to where we are right now, Wednesday night, as we record is still really good. I, there's not a single matchup on here that I am like, I don't care about this fight. I hate this fight. Why are these dudes even in the UFC? Which pretty much every other fight night card, we're asking ourselves that about one of these fights. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And the funny thing is, I didn't even mention the fight that's probably the most relevant, or at least one of the most relevant, Jimmy Rivera and Pedro Munoz. That's like another fantastic matchup that's on this card. So, uh, yeah, and I actually forgot about that one. So yeah, and. And that's actually the one I was thinking of when I said the thing about veterans with something to prove because, yeah, well, I mean, we'll get to the fight when we get to it, but it's two top 10 guys in a tough division and one of them might not be top 10 anymore afterwards. So it'll be interesting to see how that, that plays out. Who already had a good battle the first time they fought. Yes. And there's a sneaky number of rematches on this card that I keep forgetting are rematches. So we'll get to that too when we get to it. Yeah. All right, with that, let's let's get underway. Kicking things off at UFC Fight Night 186 is a light heavyweight battle between Dustin Jacoby and Maxime Grishin. Jacoby, the 32-year-old, is 1-2 in the UFC. That's a bit deceptive, as he debuted in the UFC almost a decade ago, quickly lost two fights, 
and then went to uh, wander across about a half dozen different promotions before being brought back through Dana White's Contender Series last fall. He won his return bout, uh, knocking out Justin Ledette in the first round at UFC Fight Night Hall versus Silva, which brings him to tonight. He'll be taking on Grishin. The 36-year-old Russian is 31-8-2 overall. He is 1-1 one one since joining the UFC last summer. He lost his debut at heavyweight to Marcin Tybura at UFC 251. He came back and knocked out Gajimurad Antigulov at UFC Fight Night Ortega versus Korean Zombie in October. Jacoby is the slight favorite here. He's available around minus 185, where you can get Grishin on the comeback at plus 160. As a contender series guy, I'm interested to hear what you think of Jacoby and, and his unlikely return to prominence. Yeah, it definitely was unseen when he was on, you know, when I saw him on the lineup for the contender series and not someone I expected. Uh, but I've been pleased with him. And this is actually one of the fights that, I think it's one of the best matchups on the card stylistically. I think it shouldn't be kicking off the card. I think it should be higher up. Like I think you could make an argument for this fight being on the main card. It's a good matchup. Uh, and I, I kind of feel like I know a lot about both of them because I do the contender series previews, which obviously Jacoby qualifies, but I also do the PFL previews, which Grisham would qualify. So I've, I'm, I'm pretty familiar. <laughs> what I love, though, is... We have a former middleweight versus technically a former heavyweight going at it at light heavy, which is kind of fun. Uh, I'll start with Jacoby. Uh, you mentioned it fighting on other organizations. He's also been kickboxing, glory kickboxing. Uh, I he he use he's a smaller guy for the weight class, but he uses it well because he's a lot of lateral movements. He cuts angles constantly, moving, uh, kind of tricking, setting traps. Everything comes off of his jab. When you out jab Justin Ledette, like that's a very good side of your boxing. Straight one-two combinations, kind of. What I I seem like I say this all the time, but kind of just touches and then unloads, which is like the highest boxers uh, will do that. Brutal calf kicks. I mean, he dropped Justin Ledet in his last fight with with just the kicks, and it was like two minutes into the fight. It wasn't one of these, you know, two or three minutes into the third round. It was two or three minutes into the first round. He blocks punches by parrying. Uh, so he kind of keeps things out of his face. He's a weak wrestler, but he's got a good get-up game. Now, I'm going way back in the time machine to kind of find this. But King Mo, uh, way, you know, when he fought King Mo, King Mo took him down. King Mo, who's a world-class wrestler, actually struggled to keep Jacoby down. Now, move over to Grisham. So he was undersized at heavyweight, but he's he's not a small, light heavyweight. He's long. He's lengthy. He also has a kickboxing style. He's a counter striker, and that's because he has good head movement. He draws out his attacks with feints. He's got some decent power. I love that he targets the body. Uh, he got outmuscled by Tybor in the clinch. However, that's because he went against Tybor, who one is a bigger heavyweight, but also is a good clinch wrestling heavyweight. Mostly Grisham, if he gets you in the clinch, that's his safety area. So uh, that's something he should avoid. And, and, and besides beating you up in there or just kind of grinding you in there, he can get some takedowns in there. He has some. I've seen him do some judo throws. Uh, he can also take you down from injuries on the outside. We saw that uh, in his last fight where he was getting some. Um, was it uh, was it Antigulov? He went against in his last fight. He was shooting on the hips of Antigulov. Um, now 
The one thing that's concerning, though, is that he actually has been taken down by lesser wrestlers. But I think it's when he's facing guys he doesn't expect to wrestle. Like, like if if Jacoby went for a takedown on him, he actually might get taken down. But when Jordan Johnson was trying to take him down, who's you know known for his wrestling, Jordan Johnson really struggled to take him down. The other thing that concerns me about Grisham is he's a slow starter. Like, he might give away the first round. Which is, you know, very troublesome in a three-round fight. So, as far as who am I going to pick, this is a close one. Grissom is is very technically sound fighter. However, he isn't as explosive as Jacoby is. But if he can turn this into a wrestling matchup, I think that'll greatly increase his chances. I don't know if he if he will though. Uh, he's a little bit of a slow starter. I think Jacoby will kind of piece him up early. And Jacoby has the power. If he pieces you up early, especially goes after those light kicks, you might not be able to come back on him. So I'm going to say Jacoby gets pulls out ahead on him, and he doesn't. And Grisham doesn't catch up. And I actually think Jacoby's going to get a stoppage. Uh, I think this might be a little bit of a coming out party for Jacoby. So give me Jacoby by second round uh, TKO. I think he chops him down with the light kicks and then finishes him upstairs with the punches. Oh, I love this! Right off the bat, right out the gate, uh, we're going to have some disagreement. I, I, I love your breakdown of Grishin's game because he is a bit of a slow starter. And the problem for him is that even once he gets started, he's a pretty deliberate fighter. He's not a push-the-pace guy. I think that killed him in PFL. I thought he might have been the best light heavyweight in their division both seasons he was in the PFL. But as soon as he got to the playoffs and he had to win a two-round fight decisively, he hit the wall both times. I was excited to see him join the UFC. I still don't know where he stands. He lost to Martin Tybura. That tells me nothing. Tybura is a borderline top 10 heavyweight. And as you say, just a, a mauler, just smotherer in the clinch. I mean, we saw what uh, Tybura did in the clinch to uh, Sergei Spivak, who, you know, it, it turns out is a pretty good heavyweight. And then he beat uh, Gajimurad Antagulov that I'm on record as saying might be one of the just one of the one of the worst. Uh, light heavyweights to make it through the UFC in the last couple of years. So I still am not sure where Grishin stands. He was undersized as a heavyweight. He's a big framed light heavyweight. It, not his game. His game is nothing similar, but his frame makes me think of Nikita Krylov. Just when, when he kind of stands and sticks out his arms, you're like, oh man, this guy's got a big wingspan. He's just kind of a tall, rangy dude for the weight class without being skinny. It, like you say, it's going to depend on him either getting Jacoby to the ground or at least getting to the clinch, which generally is his safe spot. It's where he can make Jacoby work without taking damage at range, without just sitting out on the gunnery range and taking those same kind of leg kicks that Jacoby used to defeat Justin Ledet. I think he can do it, though. I, I love Jacoby's comeback, he's a completely different fighter since he took those four or five years off to go and really sharpen his kickboxing. But I can't I, I can't pick him yet to uh, beat someone that I think is as good as Grishin is. So I might learn a lot on Saturday, but uh, and, until I see it, give me Grishin by uh, decision. I, I say Grishin probably loses the first round. It's a close second one, and he wins the third. 
All right. After a 10-minute break to complain to each other off-air about the flaws with the PFL season and playoff system, we are back previewing UFC Vegas 20. And next up on the prelims, it is a bantamweight scrap between Vince Cachero and Ronnie Lawrence. Cachero, the 31-year-old, is 7-3 overall. He is 0-1 in the UFC after making a late-notice appearance in his debut up a weight class at 145 against Jamal Emmers at UFC Fight Night Brunson versus Shabazian last August. He'll be welcoming Dana White's Contender Series alum, Ronnie Lawrence. The Heat is 28 years old. He is 6-1 and one overall, and he defeated Jose Johnson by unanimous decision on the Contender Series last September. Odds are slightly in favor of Lawrence. He is out there around minus 150, minus 155, where Cachero is available at plus 135 as the underdog. Keith, how do you feel about this one? Yeah, so I like this matchup in an excitement sense. I think this is going to be a very exciting matchup. Uh, I'll start with Cachero. Now, he kind of got a raw deal. It is, I believe it was UFC debut, get matched with Jamal Amers, who I, I'm, I'm very high on his skill set. Despite the back spasms, uh, yeah. uh, Cachero, his style, he, he just he reminds me of like a poor man's version of Pedro Munoz, who we'll see later on. He just marches forward, trying to get to the pocket. Uh, he fights behind a high like, defensive guard. He's got pretty fast hands, throws a lot of hooks, Try, but he tries to end the fight with every single shot. Uh, he was... He struggled with the speed of Jamal Emers. Emers was able to avoid his shots. But he did show like insane durability and a great change because Emers blasted him with big, big shots for 15 minutes. Uh, he also struggled with the length of Emers. Like he 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 didn't really bob and weave or anything or do or change up his strategy to get inside. Um he also got battered in the clinch. Like when he was able to get inside, Emers uh initiated the clinch and beat him up there. Uh, but like I said, he, I was impressed. He just kept coming. He showed great cardio. Uh, he was going just as hard in the third round as he was going in the first round. And what's even more impressive, he took that fight on short notice and moved up a weight class. Uh, though, while that's, I talked about the, you know, what I liked about his striking, his defensive wrestling is a major, major issue. Like anytime Emmer's went for takedown, he took him down well. Now, moving to Ronnie Lawrence, this is a contender series guy. I like Ronnie Lawrence. He was one of my favorite prospects on the contender series when I when I did film study of him. He's well rounded. He he is a very composed striker. He can fight from both stances, though I, I think he's better orthodox, but I think Southpaw could be a weapon in the future. He uses feints well, um, kind of gets you guessing. I say it practically every fight, but it has a stinging jab. As I like, I continue to say it's a, the narrative that MMA fighters don't throw jabs is not true anymore. Uh, nice right cross, lots of kicks. He'll throw in a spinning attack. He'll attack the body. He's got pretty good power. What I like about him is if he has you hurt, he'll turn it up. Like he smells blood. He knows how to finish you. Uh, good wrestler too. I mean, we saw that in the Contender Series. Got takedown after takedown. Uh, good takedown defense. If you take him down, he gets springs right back up. This is going to be a fun fight just because Cachorro's style 
it will make it like fun. He's going to come after Lawrence. However, like Lawrence's last opponents, Lawrence is just way too skilled for this guy. He's going to piece him up. He's a better striker than him. He's a better wrestler than him. Uh, Kachero's pressure will make it fun, but Lawrence is just going to beat him up. And I think he's going to get a lot of takedowns based on Kachero's lack of wrestling, his over-pursuit of shots, and Lawrence's style. I think Lawrence wins the decision, but I think it's going to be so – and I think he's going to win decisively, but I think it's going to be so action-packed because of the shots he's throwing Kachero. I actually am picking this as my fight of the night. Excellent. I also have Lawrence big time in this one. I remember the episode of the Contender Series when he got signed. And I remember being surprised that he was signed off of that performance. Like, because there were three people signed that night. Jimmy Flick was a gimme. I mean, if you get a flyweight who can finish fights, he's in. Then uh, the other was William Knight. I mean, if you built a dude in the lab to get signed off the Contender Series, it's going to be the man that looks like a stack of bowling balls, uh, you know, and finish his fights with shocking uh, power. But I, I was surprised, you know, uh, I remember him winning a, a pretty impressive decision, but I was glad that uh, that they signed him because, l- like you, I was impressed with him uh, on on LFA and even in his uh, loss at, at Bellator a couple of years ago. Kichero, he has all the strengths you mentioned. One problem he has is, obviously, he looked undersized next to Jamal Emmer's a featherweight who has evident trouble making the the limit, but he's not even a big bantamweight. I, I think on top of everything else, he's gonna he's gonna look a little undersized against Lawrence, and the the lack of reach is going to hurt him considering what he's going to want to do, which is just come forward. I think uh, Lawrence's superior length, his good footwork, uh, he, like you said, he's gonna piece him up. I think uh, reactive level changes are gonna be there for him if he wants to take the fight to the ground. I can't I, I can't pick a finish here. I, uh, I mean, Kachero took the best Jamal Emers could take, at, for uh, a full fight, and if anything, I'm I'm higher on Emers even than I am on Lawrence. So it's hard for me to pick a finish, but yeah, give me Lawrence in a in a dominant decision, that he pretty much dictates uh, where the action takes place, and uh, and is better everywhere, as you said. We now move back to the 205 pound division and. Speak of the devil, it is William Knight taking on Alonzo Menafield. Knight, the 32-year-old, is 9-1 overall. He is 1-1 since joining the UFC off of a win in Dana White's Contender Series last September. He took a fight on just three weeks' notice, took a pretty dominant unanimous decision over Alexa Kamer at UFC 253. He'll be taking on Menafield. The 33-year-old is 9-2 overall. He is 2-2 since joining the UFC off of uh, Season 2 of Dana White's Contender Series back in early 2019. He fought twice last year, losing a unanimous decision to Devin Clark at UFC 250 in June, then getting knocked out late in the second round by Ovent St. Preux at UFC Fight Night Overeem versus Sakai in September. Odds out there are uh, pretty much a pick Menafield is... Available around minus 115 if you like him. Otherwise, you can get Knight at minus 105, very close to even money. Who do you have in this matchup of Dana White's Contender Series uh, products? Man, this is a tough call. I mean, there's you just mentioned the odds. I mean, I think the matchmakers, uh, actually the odds makers set this perfect. It, this is a tough fight. 
Uh, it was one of those ones where I wrote down a name. Like I always say, I do. I always write down pre-tape study who I think would take, and then it's one of those ones I switched after tape study. Uh, I'll start with the the more veteran Menafield. His last two fights, we've seen like two extremes from him. He had the one against Devin Clark where he went way too hard and then gassed out. And then we had the next fight against OSP, OSP where he was extremely way too patient, did nothing until he got knocked out. Uh, talking about his actual skill set, he's got good movement. I mean, he's a good athlete. He he fights with a high guard. Uh, you know, his hands, when I say high guard, I know people know, I mean, I would keep your hands high. Uh, tends to fight in spurts, darts in with combos uh, like he tried, he was going to do, but when OSP uh, knocked him out with like a step back, uh, I think it was a step back left hand he caught him with. Though, if he fights from distance when he's not fighting in a spurt, he'll just throw single strikes, which you obviously don't like that. Uh, and he shouldn't fight from distance considering he is a shorter light heavyweight. Now, that might not be the case against William Knight, who's, who's we've said on the <laughs> Many times he's more wide than high. Um, <laughs> he's and he struggled with the length of OSP. That might be why he um, he was kind of on the outside waiting for you know, kind of hard having trouble getting inside. That will not be the same issue as you have with Knight. Uh, but he he was too impatient. Uh, he does if he cracks you, he's got some killer power. We've seen that early in his UFC run. Um, I mean. I don't think I had to say he has killed him. I mean, just look at the guy. The guy's like built like a brick shit house. He's got muscle on top of muscle. It might be the only time where William might might not be the more muscled dude, or vice versa. Like both these guys can like this looks like it's gonna look like two bodybuilders uh, decide to fight each other. Uh, he throws everything hard when he does hard leg kicks. Uh, he does have a quick high kick. He can he can throw it up there. Uh, but I'm also starting to be worried about his chin. I mean, how could you not when he last time we saw him, he was laying down face first on the canvas from OSB touching him. And he hasn't shown anything in the grappling department. Um, though he did offensively, I should say. He hasn't shown anything offensively. Defensively, the Devin Clark fight to me, I think, is a little bit that doesn't really tell the truth because early on his takedown defense looked good until he completely gassed out and then Devin Clark was able to take him down. But that is maybe the biggest floor of Alonzo Manifield is his gas tank. He gasses out and he gasses up fairly early. Now you move on to William Knight. Um, William Knight, and I, he reminds me of Derek Lewis with the – not in the sense of how they fight, but in the intangibles. Like, for example, he looks like a guy who's gassed out, like we've talked about Derek Lewis, but he doesn't. Like, he fights just as hard in the third round as he does in the first. He just carries his body a certain way, kind of like Lewis does. He's kind of sluggish, but he can press through. Now, this this guy, I, I've told you my story about him. Seeing He grew up he, – He's came up on this regional scene that I live in. Crazy athleticism. I stick back to when I saw him fight Jorgen De Castro as an amateur. He's the only guy in history I ever saw, but didn't go back to his corner after the round was over. Instead, entertaining the crowd by doing backflips and breakdancing, uh, which still <laughs> you had to be there to see it. Uh, obviously, just has insane raw power, uh, like just like his counterpart, built like a brick shit house, muscle on top of muscle. Um, his striking technique needs a lot of improvement, though. Um, a lot of people will call him a striker, and I don't think he is. 
Uh, he's kind of slow. He kind of telegraphs his shots a little bit. Pulls his head straight back. He struggles with length, but would not be a big of an issue with Menafield. Um, he when he strikes, he kind of just bull rushes. Like he just suddenly. It's not. It's not someone who darts in and out. With it's more of, okay, I have to get. I have to get inside. I'm just going to run at you, uh, which a good high level striker is going to put him out for that. Uh, his best strikes though are leg kicks. Uh, he he's got thudding leg kicks. I mean, you look at his legs; they're humongous. But he throws him naked, so he leaves him open to counters. He's a decent wrestler, and that's because I wouldn't say he's a power wrestler. He's not going to explode through your hips, but he's got good hip control himself. Uh, we've seen him do lateral drops. He did it. He did it against Alexa Kmore. You know, I'm not a fan of lateral drops. Going all the way back when I coached wrestling, I think lateral drops works on scrubs. I don't think they work in good wrestlers. Uh, it's going to backfire one day. Uh, and But if he ends up on top, he's got scary ground upon, which actually goes back to the Derek Lewis. Like we've talked about if Derek Lewis is on top of you, throwing hammers down on you, like that might be the most scariest thing ever. Well, William Knight, William Knight's in the club when it comes to the ground pound. Uh, he does struggle to get off the bottom if he's taken down. We saw that with the on the contender series of Corey Brundage. Uh, but he has some submission record. Like he's not a, he's not a scrub in the submission category. Like he's got some submissions on his amateur record, even going against Kamar. He was, he got a deep key lock, like some of that only William Knight can get now. And you, it's like William Knight and Ron Waterman could get a submission like this. Uh, <laughs> and he had Kamar in the second round and Kamar was saved by the bell of it. Um, and he's got tons of heart. Like what I talked about, like he reminds me of Derek Lewis, like, not a guy you think of heart, and then you watch him, and it's like every time, like, oh wow, he was battled through in the third round, and that's similar to William Knight does. I know I've been talking way longer in this fight than probably expected, just because the two contender series guys. This is an extremely tough goal. This is probably my flip flopper where I, I flip flopped a lot this week. I have constantly found doubt in Knight's journey um, through the amateurs, through the regional scene, through the contender series, now in the UFC, but he just keeps proving me wrong. And I'm not gonna if if unless I'm extremely confident against his foe, I'm not gonna pick against him anymore. Every time it's a close battle and I pick against him, I lose. So I'm gonna say Knight wins a grueling, heavy clinch battle where it may be one one head in the third round, and he's the one who digs deeper, gets a takedown, gets on top. And I actually think he's gonna ground and pound him in the third round and win. So give me Knight by third round TKO from ground and pound. There you have it. And the other dynamic at work here is that it's CES versus LFA, you know, among the, the high-level UFC feeder leagues. It is very rare that Keith will come down on the on the side of the local guy in that one, so you, you know that you got some, some true belief here. I can absolutely see it playing out that way, and if this thing goes past the first round, certainly if it goes past, like, the midway point of the second round, my like, my betting, if I were a live better, is... is going in heavy on night for all the reasons you said his gas tank is better than it looks. I underestimated him coming into the camera fight. I was, cause I'd seen him on the contender series. I'd gone back and seen his CES fights. Well, I'd seen him on contender series uh, both times, but seen his uh, CES fights. And I was like, this is a guy that it'll be fun while it lasts, but this game is not going to function at the UFC level. I was dead wrong against uh gamer. However, the, the flip side is if not Kamer, like, Cody Brundage may very well be Knight's best win. He simply hasn't been taking on people at the level that Menafield has. I mean, 
Ovid St. Preux is clearly on the downslope now, but he's a longtime top 10 fighter. He's still borderline top 15. And Devin Clark, while he got turned away in his recent shot to kind of establish himself as a top 15 uh, or a top 10 fighter, he's at least UFC level. He's a, he's a very solid UFC light heavyweight. And then he's, you know, he beat uh, Paul Craig badly. So Menafield, I, I think he is going to be pretty easily the best fighter Knight has taken on so far. And if this, for as long as this fight stays on the feet, I think it actually favors Menafield pretty heavily. Uh, Menafield isn't used to having a reach advantage. He's going to have one. He is going to have an advantage in, in reach and height. I have no idea which of these guys bench presses more, but when they put hands on each other in the clinch, I have the feeling that Menafield will have an advantage there at least for the first round just out of leverage and just raw bulk. I think he's probably a, a heavier guy in terms of walking weight. I'm going to pick Menafield to finish this by knockout in the first round, but I know full well that if that doesn't happen, everything favors Knight for all the reasons you said. Knight really is... I mean, he's like Lewis or like Yoel Romero in that he's always dangerous no matter how tired he looks, but he's like Lewis in that dig deep and find something... And if it happens, I will be super happy to be wrong. I'd love to see, I mean, you know, people digging deep and willing their body to do things it doesn't want to do is one of the inspiring things about this sport. But I'm not picking us to see it. Give me Alonzo Menafield by first round uh, TKO. Next up on the UFC Fight Night 186 prelims, it is a matchup between two flyweight women moving up to bantamweight. And in a rarity, even for the post-Joe Silva UFC, it is a matchup of a woman on a three-fight losing streak against a woman on a three-fight winning streak. They would be Alexis Davis and Sabina Maso. Davis, the 36-year-old Canadian, is 19-10 and 10 overall. She is 6-5 and five in the UFC. The aforementioned three-fight losing streak consists of Viviane Araujo back at UFC 40, in July of 2019, Jennifer Maya in March of 2019, and Caitlin Jukagian back in July of 2018. She has been inactive for a little over a year and a half. She'll be taking on Mazo. The 23-year-old Colombian is 9-1. She is 3-1 since joining the UFC. She lost her UFC debut back in March of 2019 to Marina Moroz. Since then, she has defeated Shayna Dobson, J.J. Aldridge, and Justine Kish. The Kish fight, the most recent, took place at UFC Fight Night Watterson versus Hill last September. Mazo is a comfortable favorite. She is sitting around minus 200 right now. Davis available around plus 170 or plus 175. And Keith, I, I don't know who is going to win this fight. I have a pick for it, but I will say that I'm a little surprised at the odds. The first time, well, when I first started kind of putting together my thoughts about this fight, I was tempted to call Davis a pioneer. I rescinded that just because she didn't even start, like her pro debut was in 2007. You know, a pioneer is someone like Roxanne Mataferi, who like was almost fighting in the 90s. I think I think of her as a pioneer because she started fighting the best women in the sport immediately. Her first fight was against Sarah Kaufman. And, you know, Five fights later, she's fighting Tara LaRosa, who was probably the best woman, like probably the scariest woman in the sport, not named Cyborg at that point. Uh, she's been around for 
over a decade. She's fought just about everybody. Her UFC record, it's six and five. It's it's worse than it looks because of that three fight losing streak. She's beaten some of the best women in the world. I mean, she she's beaten Sarah Kaufman, beaten Liz Carmouche twice. Uh and her her Jessica so, I. Jessica she beat Jessica I beat Shayna Baszler when that still I mean that still meant something. It wasn't Baszler's horrible kind she, of career ending run. She didn't win like the WWE title when she beat her. Ex- exactly. She didn't pick <laughs> up the WWE title. Uh and her her slide over kind of 2018, 2019, was against good women. Araujo, Maya, and Chikagian, all, you know, top 10, top 10-ish fighters right now. Even though, even if Davis has lost a step, I think she's the right person to beat Mazo. I like Mazo. Uh, the first time I saw any Sabina Mazo fight was when Alejandra Lara was about to a fight in Bellator, and I started uh, going back and watching uh, Laura's old fights. They're both from Colombia. They both fought way back when it was Mazo's debut. I like her as a prospect. I don't know if I like her at Bantamweight. At flyweight, I mean, she's kind of a tall flyweight. It says, I mean, she's listed at 5'7", but she feels tall in a way that not all 5'7"-ish flyweight women do. She's just kind of long-limbed, she fights long, she wants to kickbox at, at distance. Her strength, I think, is a is a bit of a, a deficit. Her loss to, to uh, Marina Moroz was just her running into a woman who was as tall as her and stronger, and she got bullied. That's something that I think Alexis Davis can do to her. Uh, Mazo, obviously her future is brighter. She's 13 years younger. She, for all I know, she's a future contender in the UFC, either at flyweight or bantamweight. But I think I think Davis has got everything it's going to take here to to beat Mazo or make her look really bad. Uh, Davis is going to want to crowd her. She's not going to want to give her the the long range kickboxing game she wants. She's going to pressure her. She's going to try to collapse the pocket. Uh, she may well try to take her down. Uh, Mazo can be taken down. Yeah, I. I think Alexis Davis wins this. Just, I, I think she wins an ugly decision. I don't think she's going to finish Mazo, but this is this is a, a bad matchup for Mazo to me, and it's a good one for Davis if she has anything left in the tank. Wow. So you kind of the theme when we were talking about their records. I agree with everything you said. Like it doesn't tell the full story. Not only she, she's on a three fight losing streak. But she was competitive in all three of those fights. Besides, you know, like I watched her last fight against Arujo, and Arujo like really kind of took over in the third round. But th- that was after Davis won the second round. Like it was, it was close. Um, I'll talk about Davis. You know, skill set. She's a pressure counter striker. She's got good timing on on her opponent's attacks. She attacks with combination. I would say her best strike is probably her straight right. She tends to. Um, Keep her hands a little low, though. Uh, she throws lots of kicks. Because yeah, well, Mazo is a taller, longer girl. Like Davis is a little, you know, similar build. Not, you know, not to the extent of Mazo, but she, you know, she's a longer kind of girl. Uh, she like, but if she's not striking, she can wrestle. She can grind. She's a grinder. Will wear on you. Push against the cage. She'll mix in some clinch takedowns. She has some decent timing on her entries. She's a good topside grappler. Good ground control, uh, 
busy ground and pound and she's on top can get a submission uh, off her back if she has to she has eight career submissions uh, she can be taken down due to probably her overconfidence in her submission grappling or she almost won't fight off a takedown attempt as hard as she probably should uh, but she has some good cardio like she she took a beating especially going back to that original fight her most recent one she was beat up bloodied but she kept coming through with the whole 15 minutes now move over to mazo mazo's only 23 so that's like that's always the number that jumps out to me you know i like talking about fighters ages i i, I 23 is that area where she can make so much room for growth uh, long and lengthy she has 70 inch reach she's a high volume striker got some decent pop uh, she makes some mistakes of pulling her head straight back to avoid punches. Um, and while her, her long legs is obviously a tool because, you know, she, when she throws a kick so hard, she can throw the high kick, which we've seen, especially on the regional scene. High kick was like her go-to, and she has a lot of highlights with that the knockouts. They're also a huge target to be kicked. She doesn't check kicks well, uh, which makes it worse. Uh, Cena Kish, well, you know, she got the, she knocked her down and, and jumped on her back, submitted her. That doesn't tell the whole story. Kish was having a lot of success kicking her legs. Um, she's got what I what I like about her leg kicks, and I know we're gonna move on, is that she can hide it, and this is how she gets it out. She hides it behind her punches, which is always the best way to set up a high kick. Now, very few people can. Can Merco croak up and just kick right through your stuff? Like most when you got to kind of hide it. Uh, she can sneak in a takedown. Like she took Shane Dobson down four times, which was the even though she's a striker, that's the best avenue to beat a Shane Dobson, which is nice to see. Uh, her, I'm still not sold on her takedown defense. That like Marina Morales took her down, Justina Kush took her down, uh, but she does have good cardio. No, it's hard to have any confidence in picking Alexa Davis considering she hasn't fought in nearly two years. She's, I think she, like, what'd she say? She's 36, 37. Like she's 36. 36 yeah. years old. She hasn't fought in nearly two years. She hasn't won in nearly three years. Uh, but everything you said about she's faced the higher competition, like she's taken a step down in competition and Miles was taking a step up. I think. I'm with you, man. I think Davis is going to turn this into a grueling battle. I think she's going to get some takedowns. And uh, I'm kind of mad that you took Davis because I expect <laughs> you to take Mazo. And it kind of takes away my steam. But this is my upset special. Give me Davis by decision. Excellent. I was just hoping that we'd have uh, three disagreements in the first four fights of the night. But I I'm happy to have you on board the upset wagon with me. We now move up to the welterweight division where a late shakeup marks the long-delayed, long-awaited UFC debut of Ramazan Kuramagomedov. Kuramagomedov, the 23-year-old, uh, appeared on Dana White's Contender Series Season 3 back in 2019, won a split decision over Jordan Williams, and did not get a, a UFC contract off of that performance, it was a pretty crowded night. Uh, Sean Woodson, Billy Quarantillo, Jamal Hill were all signed to the UFC. And ironically, even the man Kuramaga made off beat that night, Jordan Williams, ended up making his Octagon debut first. Nonetheless, a, a late cancellation left Alex Cowboy Oliveira in need of an opponent, and so Kuramaga made off steps up. Oliveira, the 33-year-old veteran, is... Uh, 22 9 and 1 with two no contests overall. 
He is 11 and 7 with one no contest since joining the UFC. Kuramagomedov, the 23 year old Dagestani, is 8 and 0 and steps in for Randy Brown, who was forced to withdraw from the fight late last week. Odds, nearly a pick him, but surprisingly, the veteran uh, is the slight underdog. You can still get him at plus money, plus 100, where Kuramagomedov is available as cheaply as minus 115 as the favorite. Keith, I know that you were big on uh, Ramazan Kuramagomedov, even leading into his performance on the Contender Series. Are you still? Yeah, I am. I mean, uh, Jordan Williams, had a, I thought, had a pretty good showing against him, but um, I, I still look at Kuramagomedov as one of the best prospects on that. I'm glad the UFC added him, especially because he's so young. I think he's like 23. Um, he trains in a good team with Mark Henry. Um, I don't like taking a short notice fight against Alex Oliveira or someone who's got way more experience. Uh, but I'll continue talking about uh, Magomedov. Uh, he's well-rounded. He's he's a good striker, southpaw. He's can fight from both stances, but he he uses more stances to kind of get he'll switch to orthodox, you know, throw a punch and switch back. Good footwork. He avoids you know attacks with footwork, which is always like that should be your first line of defense. Uh, high pace fighter, popping jab, nice straight left. Uses feints well to kind of freeze his opponent. Wide variety of kicks that he uses. Um, legs, body, head. His his left, his left kick to the body on an orthodox fighter is a killer shot. He's a strong, strong wrestler. Though sometimes I've seen fights, even though he's such a good wrestler, this Ben fights where I've seen him just completely ignore his wrestling, which is to me is insane considering how good his wrestling is. Good takedown defense. You'd be very hard to take down. Uh, great guillotine. Like I've seen him lock on the guillotine uh, on the regional scene. And that's actually the move that Oliveira got caught in in his last fight. Uh, he could sometimes end up on bottom by jumping for the guillotine. Like, you know, if he doesn't get get it, which is, you know, a little Dustin Poirier effect. It's, it's, it's a dangerous thing to go for. Uh, and like most wrestlers, he's not comfortable on his back. That's an area that if Oliveira can get him down, and, uh, it'll, it'll be good. But if he gets the takedowns, he is your classic Russian Dagestanian type smother wrestler he gets on top he's looking to advance position he's he's isolating a single arm heavy ground and pound and he's got a good gas tank where he can wrestle for 15 minutes the move to Oliveira, you know i feel like at this point <laughs> it's weird i don't know if we've since we've been doing the breakdowns if we've done Oliveira fight i think we might have done one i think but i feel like we've done a million it just because i i just feel like we just know with Oliveira what he is now. He's a usually, usually not always, but usually a pretty aggressive uh, fighter who really counts on his athleticism. He's elusive. He hits hard. He's a very unorthodox style, which you're not going to get many people in your gym that can kind of mimic him. Throw some weird angles. That's because he keeps his hands low. Not only does he keep his hands low, but he kind of keeps them dangling to the side, so they don't even come like from the hips. They come like outside of the hips. Uh, he also has very long arms, long legs. Kind of loops his shots, but it works for him. Uh, he'll throw a jab, like an up jab, similar to like a Floyd Mayweather. He'll throw, when Floyd Mayweather throws like the up jab. Throw some deep kicks, body kicks. He'll throw a spinning attack, flying knee. Uh, he 
that's the thing about Oliver. Like you, he's got so many weapons. Um, he's like the Swiss Army knife. Like you don't want to use. None of them are special with the Swiss Army knife. You know, you're not cutting down a tree with the, you know, the little <laughs> the little saw part of it. But it's nice to have all these different tools. Uh, he is he's willing to brawl Oliver because he you know he counts on his strength his his power. If you get in close, he'll probably hit you with a step in elbow. Uh, the clinch game is good for him. He's just a physically strong dude. Uh, he's hard to take down. He can get some takedowns himself. Gets on top. Good. Good ground and pound, but cardio has been an issue in the past. We've seen him gas out. We've seen him lose fights because of the gas tank. Though the last time he went to distance was against Peter Sabata, he didn't gas out in that fight. But he fought a very conservative, a conservative fight than we've used to seeing Oliveira. So as far as the pick, man, this is a tough one because I'm very, very high on Kamagomedov. And taking, like I mentioned in the beginning, taking on Oliveira on short notice is a is extremely, extremely tough out. And it's also a, a Oliveira is a tough stylistic matchup because Kuringamagavinov is usually stronger than his opponents. He's usually a much better wrestler. I don't know if he, I think he's still a better wrestler, but I don't know if he's stronger than Oliveira. Uh, we'll find out when they get into the clinch battles. Um, but I'm I'm going to go with the newcomer against my own. Judgment. Maybe I'm a little biased to contender series, and this is one of the guys I liked. But I'm just simply going off potential. Oliver has miles uh, of worn out tread on his tires due to years of being in the UFC, years of fighting top guys. And let's not forget, this is the guy that came from a professional rodeo career, which is very hard on your body too. <laughs> you know, getting thrown off. You know, riding bulls and getting thrown on your head. I'm gonna say Mark. Uh, Kamagomedov turns it into a heavy wrestling match. It's a grueling one. I think he kind of, uh, you know, struggles to get him down early, but he starts getting takedowns later. And I'm going to say Kamagomedov wins his UFC debut, and I say it's a split decision. There you go. A lot of the the things that you're saying, really about the whole dynamic here, make me think of Oliveira's last fight, his loss to Shavkat Rachmanov, because I watched Rachmanov. And I said, all right, this is a guy whose game, because I think he came in 11-0 or something, it it has hinged on him being the stronger guy and the more athletic guy, and really th- that was what made the motor run, that he just he bullied and out, uh, out-hustled his, uh, his opponents. I said, I don't know if that'll work on the UFC level, and Alex Oliveira is a really big ask to, you know, f- to start that with, and he just ran him over. I don't know how much of that is just due to Rachmanov being better than I could have certified him to be against the type of competition he was facing and how much was a problem with Oliveira. And if it is a problem with Oliveira, how much of it may have been a temporary problem because Oliveira missed weight for that fight as well, uh, which is not, not really in character for him. And it makes me wonder if he had some sort of you know nagging injury uh, or, or something going on. So I'm, I'm not ready to declare Oliveira just shot even if he is one of the oldest 33 year olds in in my memory in the ufc i'm just it's stunning that he's only 33 but if if i'm not ready to call Oliveira done i i am cautiously ready to be higher on ramazan kuramagomedov than i was on rachmanov i've seen more of kuramagomedov against more certifiable competition 
I think he's even a better fighter than he was a couple years ago when he appeared on the Contender Series. I think the couple more fights did him some good. And I actually see this one playing out like uh, you do. I think it probably does go to a decision. Oliveira is still a tough guy to finish. I mean, it, the guys that have beat him, other than Rachmanov, who, again, just completely steamrolled him, Gunnar Nelson, I think half the reason that that finish happened was because Oliver was just drenched in blood and couldn't see and couldn't breathe and just was like, this sucks, I want to go home. Uh, short of something like that, I don't know if Kuromagomedov finishes him, but I think he'll show up and he he won't let Oliveira uh, play his game. I think Kuromagomedov will be the bigger and stronger guy when they clinch. I think he will be able to wrestle Oliveira down and uh, make him uncomfortable from his back. And I think a lot of this fight is probably going to be kind of a grind. We're going to see some lengthy exchanges where, you know, Kuromagomedov just has Oliveira wrapped up against the fence, either, you know, down at his hips or or in the clinch. And then more extended series where they're on the ground and Kuromagomedov is trying to advance position. Oliveira is trying to uh, escape, you know, get to the fence, etc. But give me uh, Ramazan Kuromagomedov by decision. Better late than never. Welcome to the UFC for uh, a very promising welterweight prospect. All right. After a brief off-air break so that Keith could tell me the story of when Mr. International Shoney Carter taught him how to play roulette, we reached the featured prelim of the evening, a lightweight matchup between Alexander Hernandez and Tiago Moises. Hernandez, the 28-year-old Texan, is 12 and 3 overall. He is 4 and 2 in the UFC. He went 1 and 1 last year, losing to Drew Dober by second round TKO at UFC Fight Night Smith versus Teixeira back in May, then returned on the UFC's Halloween night card and put away Chris Gritzmacher with first round punches. Moises, the 25-year-old Brazilian is 14 and 4 overall. He is 3 and 2 in the UFC. He fought most recently on that same Halloween card, winning a unanimous decision over Bobby Green. Previous to that, he fought at UFC Fight Night 171 Smith versus Teixeira, again the same card as Hernandez, where he lost the first round to Michael Johnson before coming back to submit him with a nifty Achilles lock early in the second. These two men have apparently been orbiting each other for a year now, and they finally meet. Hernandez, the moderate favorite, Minus 185, Moises, plus 165. Keith, who wins? Well, let me tell you the story about the time Tank Abbott taught me how to shotgun a beer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, uh, <laughs> uh, Keith Schillen is... in the market for a new liver in 2028. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if, if, if Tank Abbott taught you how to drink beer, I'd, yeah, I'd be dead by now. Um, so let's start with Alex Hernandez. Uh Actually, I think both these guys. I think Moses made a lot of improvements in his last fight. Uh, but I'll start with Hernandez. Uh, well-rounded. That's the first thing that jumps out to me. Like, I don't think of him as a striker or a grappler. I think he's good at both. He's very strong. Like, he's a physically strong guy. Uh, pretty fast hands. Clean technical boxing. He's accurate. Does well to dart in and out of range. We saw that in his last fight a lot. I really love his uh, jab to the body overhand right combo He just he, that he landed on Guzmacher at will. Hard kicks does very well to mix his punches and kicks together, like in combinations, which we that's actually something I don't think we see enough of. We see a lot of I'm gonna kick, I'm gonna punch, like to add it all together, you know, like you know, left jab, right 
hook followed by a body kick. Like he does that very well. He needs to take a little off his punches though. Like he needs to learn how to conserve some energy because he doesn't like he everything he throws is hard. Nice entries, uh, good in scrambles. Like he's he's got a ground game. Uh, I don't know if he's gonna want to test the ground game against Moises. Moises is only twenty five. Like you've got to love that. Uh, which is I had to like double check that because he just seems so much older than that. He's some he showed some really big improvements recently because he he was a one dimensional fighter not that long ago. Uh, while his stand-up is still pretty raw and he throws, you know, your basic combinations, he does have natural gifts. Like he has natural athleticism, natural speed, decent power. Uh, his kicking game has really come along. Uh, I love that he can actually similar to what we just talked about Hernandez. He'll go high and low. Like he'll tack high and then he'll tack low. Uh, decent entries. Not an elite wrestler, which is uh, you, you know he's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu wrestler. Which, if people know what I mean, like he, he learned his takedowns in the Brazilian justice room, not in the wrestling room. Uh, he makes a mistake of shooting and then kind of stopping or shooting and not driving through the hips, kind of doing that like lazy shoot on your hips and, and sneak the leg behind you trip that works on scrubs, don't work against good wrestlers. Uh, but he's got slick BJJ. He's got six wins by submission. Uh, we'll drop down an ankle. We saw what he did and. Michael Johnson, he submitted Michael Johnson by just dropping down, uh, I believe it was a heel hook. Uh, almost caught Bobby Green in, in his last fight with a submission. I think it was now the heel hook. I like both of these guys. I definitely think Moise's best avenue to win is to get it to the ground. I think on the feet, Hernandez is a little faster, a little more technical. I think he mixes up a little better. I think he has more power. I don't know if Moises would be able to take down Hernandez, and I think that's going to really – I think he's going to – Shoot a couple of times. Hernandez is going to stop the takedowns, forces to stand up on the feet. I think about the second round, Hernandez is going to catch him with a shot and put him out. So give me Hernandez by second round TKO. I'm glad that you said that you uh, were surprised that Moises is only 25 years old because I felt the exact same way. And it's not like talking about Cowboy Oliveira where I can't believe he's only 33 because his face looks 43. It's that... He fights like an older fighter, like a more veteran fighter. There's a certain poise to him. He he doesn't he doesn't panic. He fights pretty smart. The Johnson fight was a great example of that. I mean, he got pieced up for the first round. I had picked Johnson to win that fight, and I felt very comfortable afterwards because that was a, it was a great first round for Johnson. You know, he fought calm. He fought to his best advantage. Just really outstruck Moises badly, and Moises went back to his stool, regrouped, and uh, ankle locked. Johnson like 30 seconds later. Both of these guys have fought Benil Dariush. Alexander Hernandez flattened him in like 45 seconds, whereas Moises got absolutely trucked for 15 minutes by him. And yet, in a way, I almost learn more about Moises and think of it as more to his credit than Hernandez knocking Dariush out in seconds. Because it showed that poise. Moises is used to being the better grappler. He is not used to getting a 10-8 round on the ground. And Darius was just bigger, stronger, better wrestler, better grappler. And yet uh, Moises was was still there in the last round, uh, you know, still trying to, to win the fight. I am high on him as a prospect. As you say, he's, he's becoming a, a better striker. I don't know if he'll ever be a great striker. I don't know if he'll ever be a great wrestler, but he has the potential to become that Damian Maya type 
functional wrestler where he's good enough at getting the fight into his wheelhouse, even through like unconventional uh, avenues. Hernandez is a big ask for him. Like you say, Hernandez is strong. He is, he's an explosive guy. He's an explosive athlete. Uh, I've, you know, I've spent some time around him. I've seen him at open workouts, just doing his thing from like three feet away. The guy is a specimen. And as you say, he throws everything really hard. I think uh, Hernandez in that same first round that Moises had against Johnson probably would have slept Moises. And it's it's hard for me to get that idea out of my head. I th- I do think Hernandez is just going to be too much for Moises. Moises won't be able to get the fight where he wants it. While he's improving as a striker and Hernandez is he's a he's a good boxer. He I mean he is he is a good technical boxer, even if he's not quite as slick as Michael Johnson. He throws everything a lot harder. And so even though, like I say, even though I, I still think Moises has a lot of upside, this is just a bad matchup at a bad time for him. Give me Alexander Hernandez by first round knockout in a fight that for all we know might look differently if they run it back a year or two for now. With that, we start off the six-fight main card of UFC Vegas 20. It is a bantamweight matchup between Alex Caceres and Kevin Kroom. Caceres, the 32-year-old, is 17-12 and 12 with one no contest overall. He is 12-10 and 10 with one no contest since joining the UFC. He takes on Kroom. The man who goes by the hard-hitting hillbilly is a 33-year-old from Columbia, Missouri, who is 21 and 12 with one no contest. That one no contest is or was his UFC debut, where he showed up on short notice at UFC Fight Night 177 last September, promptly destroyed Roosevelt Roberts in 31 seconds with a flurry of strikes and a guillotine choke, only to have the fight overturned after the fact for the devil weed. Caceres is a comfortable favorite here, sitting around minus 210, while uh, Kroom is available at plus 175 as the underdog. Keith, is there any value to Kroom as the underdog there? Um, well, no, I don't think so. So I've seen Kroom. He kind of, I, I don't want to say he started on this scene. I mean, he kind of bounced around everywhere. He was not developed on the legal scene, but he has fun on the scene, so I've seen him live. Um, I'll, I'll start with Caceres. I mean, first thing, tons of experience. I think he said I was listening to his interviews today during their um, what do they call it, the press conference day or whatever. Yeah, I think they said it's his twenty fourth UFC fight, which is crazy. Uh, Southpaw, very elusive, got great vision. Uh, he really, you can see focus. You can see what's coming in. Nice jab, lots of kicks. Has a you know, I wouldn't say a good grappler, but he has a he has a an orthodox, funky style grappling to his game. Like he can definitely be out grappled, but he could also be tr- he could also trick some good grapplers too because of his you know his weird limbs, the way he rolls. He'll roll with the, he kind of has like a Tim Elliott style to his grappling. Um, though, it, like Tim Elliott, the backfires on him. Suddenly you you scramble and you're giving up your back in a scramble. He does have six submissions on his record. Uh, not the 
best fight IQ though about Alex Cesaris. Like he will strike with better strikers and he'll grapple with better grapplers. And and sometimes he doesn't do it the opposite way. Like if he's got a grappling advantage, he might not look for that. Uh, I don't like that. But what about Corey Kroom? I'm not spending that too much time on Corey Kroom. Uh, to me, he's the definition of like a grizzled regional journeyman. I- I'm glad he got a shot in the UFC. I'm even more happy that Cedric just getting a shot, he won in the UFC. Like, good for him. That's great. That said, I do not see a UFC level guy. Don't get me wrong, he's tough. The dude is a is a brawler. He can take a shot. He can land a power shot himself, and which we saw when he caught Roberts and then you know locked on the submission. He has a submission threat. He's got seven, uh, excuse me, ten submissions on his record. Uh, he can take a beating and keep going. He just simply doesn't have the physical tools offensively to succeed at this level. I hate saying his last fight was a lucky shot. Because I'm not that high on Roberts, but he, if Caceres fights him 10 times, he's winning all 10. If Caceres fights him 50 times, Caceres is winning 49. You know, if fights him 100 times, he beats him 98 times. Like, you know, his best bet is probably just to go ball so well and hope he catches him with something or just breaks him with like insane cardio. I just don't see it happen. I was in attendance. I remember when, when he fought Matt Bassett. Um, who, you know, I think he would say it himself is a at best a low level UFC fighter, you know, kind of like a really good regional. And I think Matt Bissett is a probably a better prospect than Matt Group. Uh, I was there and I saw Bissett tee off on him. Now Bissett has more power than Caceres, but Caceres is longer and even more elusive. And I think it's going to look a lot like that. I think you're going to see Kroom throwing it. Punches at the air and uh, Caceres is already out of the way and already landing, you know, a long kick and long jab, something like that. I think we could see even like a 10 8 round and multiple 10 8 rounds. I can see Kroon beat up, bloodied up. Give me Caceres, give me a blowout. And I'm, I know the odds, you know, I think he's a two to one favorite, so it's not like bold, but this is my lock of the week. Like, I like taking Caceres at two to one. I think it should be a three or four to one favorite. Give me Caceres in a blowout. There you have it. I definitely uh, feel what you're putting down in terms of their relative skills. It scares me to write off Kroom because I'm just basically uh, eating crow this week after, after having to admit that Derek Minner was a better fighter than I probably gave him credit for based on his regional fights and Kroom literally beat Derek Minner a couple of years ago in LFA. But the thing is, and this is how I, I talk myself into probably having to like apologize again next week. The one thing Minner has that Kroom does not is that Minner is a physical bull. He is an athlete. He's a super strong guy and he has a wrestling background. That's something that he's always going to have in his pocket. And it, you know, it helped help. It helped make his fight against Charles Rosa last weekend, such a top control uh, clinic. Uh, Kroom doesn't really have that. I hesitate to call his win over Roosevelt Roberts a fluke. I mean, he kicked him in the head, he punched him up, and he choked him out. It was it was sensational. And it's dumb that it was reversed for Wheat, but whatever. For, a, for much of his career, Alex Caceres was the kind of guy that you could see that happening to. He just was a guy that found a way sometimes to lose some fights he should have won. 
That hasn't been the case recently. He's on the first three-fight winning streak of his uh, UFC career, officially. I mean, he really has a five-fight winning streak, but he, uh, he, I think he actually popped for weed as well in the middle of it. So, uh, you know, he's in good company, I guess. Uh, they can talk about it after. But the kind of people that he's been beating on this most recent run, even though Caceres is the one who's saying, I know everybody sees me as a gatekeeper. I'm here to prove I'm more than that. What he literally has turned into in 2019, 2020 is an elite gatekeeper. I mean, turning away people like Steven Peterson, Chase Hooper, Austin Springer that are kind of borderline UFC material and just showing definitively, okay, these guys go that way and you need to beat Alex Caceres if you want to go this way. Kroom's going to run into that, and I'm with you. This is going to be another one where just Caceres shows them there's levels to this. I don't know what Caceres' ceiling is. It, it really is hard to picture him as a top 10 fighter in any of the weight classes in which he competes. They're just they're just tough weight classes. But he's going to be too much for Kroom, and he's now become a guy that just he, – he fights smarter. He fights meaner. Uh, he fights like a guy who maybe – sees the decline of his physical tools, if not right now, at least on the horizon, sees it, the end of his career on the horizon after that, and he's taking this seriously. He knows it's food on his table. He's not the he's not the goofy guy anymore, at least not once the cage door shuts. That's all bad news for Kevin Kroom, because the things that Kroom is good at, Caceres is better at, and I don't think he's going to give him an opening. I've got Caceres by, in this one, and uh, give, me, give me Caceres by submission. I think when it goes badly, Kroom's going to want to take it to the ground, and that's not going to be any better. So Caceres by second round submission. Next up, it is a strawweight matchup and a strawweight rematch nearly four years in the making as Angela Hill and Ashley Yoder meet for the second time. Hill, the 36-year-old, is 12-9 and nine overall. She is 7-9 and nine after joining the UFC as a former Invicta strawweight champion. She is on a two-fight losing streak, having lost to Michelle Watterson last September and Claudia Gadelia last May, both by split decision. Those back-to-back -back losses put an end to a three-fight winning streak, which included Ariane Carnalosi, Hannah Cyphers, and Loma Lugbunmi. Waiting across the octagon will be Yoder. The 33-year-old Californian is 8-6 and six overall. She is 3-5 and five since joining the UFC. She defeated Miranda Granger last November by unanimous decision. That put an end to a two-fight skid in which she had lost to Lavinia Souza and Random Marcos, dating all the way back to October 2019. Hill is a prohibitive favorite here, around minus 325, where Yoder is plus 265. Their first fight took place at the Tough 25 finale, back in July 2017 with Hill winning by unanimous decision. Keith, do you see either of these fighters as very different? Do you see much that tells you this fight will turn out much differently? Um, I see both of them improved. I'd say that. I would say generally their style hasn't changed much. You know, um, I would say Ashley Yoder of the two has made probably the biggest jump in improvement because she needed the biggest jump. Um, that said, I'll tell you right now, I'm taking Angel Hill. I, I, uh, I think she has just a much better skill set. I'll start with, uh, uh, she, you know, she's light on the feet. She's a Muay Thai type striker. She's, she likes to work from distance, you know, an out fighter, Chris jab, 
Uh, though she could sometimes overextend on her shots, kind of reaching. She does that, like, reaching, uh, which will leave her to open to a counter. <clears throat> she does do well, though. Like, while she's open to counter, when she overextends, she does well when she's attacking to bounce her head off the center line. Uh, kind of Domin- Dominic um, Cruz-ish, where he kind of over-exaggerates her head. She kind of does the same thing. Uh, I love her dipping right hand that she does. She'll dip to the left and throw the right hand over the top. Uh, she has a nice check left left hook. Uh, she, I love that she was focusing on working on the body against Claudia Cadelia. Uh, she's good in the clinch, uh, good at framing, kind of creating the space to land knees. Takedown defense is still a weakness for her. Uh, while she has shown improvement, she still struggled to you know to stop takedowns and then get off the, the bottom against Miranda Marcos, Claudia Cadelia. Michelle Waterson. I mean, other fights early on in her career. But I'm talking these are ones somewhat recently ago. Yoda, as I mentioned, she she's made some big improvements from her tough days. Uh, just like going back to like her fight against Ronda Marcos, the fact that it was a you know competitive matchup, which says a lot compared to where Yoda is. If you went back to like her tough finale to say yeah, Ashley Yoda was still in the UFC these days, I, like I would be very surprised. But she she. Kind of deserves it, you know. She's—I would say she's a lower-level fighter, but she's not an absolute. Um, she's not a can. Uh, she's she's improved herself. So she's southpaw. Throws a lot of kicks, uh, especially from range. Her nothing special about her boxing game. Uh, that's where she needs to improve. She keeps her chin high in the air. Uh, makes it worse because she's a taller, strawweight kind of gives her a bigger target. She. She can get to the clinch where she can grind. Uh, she has okay takedowns. Um, though she <laughs> she does go do that dumb uh, head and arm throw. I don't know how many females <laughs> have to give up their back to realize that that does not work. Uh, even even like two years ago, it didn't work two years ago. It works even less now. Um, if Yoda turns this into a wrestling match, if she can wrestle 15 minutes, she could win this based on Hill's you know, we take down events that says, I don't think she's going to be able to, I think Hill's footwork. Um, Yoda's, she's not a power wrestler. This isn't color sparse or anything like that. Uh, Hill should be able to pick her apart from distance. Uh, if she gets the clinch, I actually think that might favor Hill, especially if she's the one initiating the clinch. I think Hill breezes to a victory. I'm not going to go all Alex Caceres, Kevin Kroom, but I think this is going to be a, 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 Shut out. I think we could even see some 10 8 rounds in this one, too. Uh, give me Hill and give me a Hill and a blowout. Yeah, I there's not much I can say to that. E- even Hill's theoretically two fight losing streak, they're both split decisions. And for me, they're they're split decisions that go two different ways. I I thought she lost the Watterson fight. I thought she actually should have won the Gedalia fight. But in either way, they were both razor close, and those were both against current or former top 10-ish women and in particular both women that generally want to wrestle i know what michelle waterson's nickname is but truth is against uh ufc level straw weights she's the wrestling hottie uh and it's surprising how well she's made that work considering how small she is and then obviously claudia gadalia is just an absolute bull and has made that work against basically everyone not named jessica andrage Ashley Yoder cannot follow those routes to victory. She wants it on the ground, but while she's improved, 
she's I mean, she's just not a, a submission machine or a dominant ground force at the level she's fighting at right right now. Whereas Hill, she started out as a pretty straightforward one-dimensional Muay Thai striker, and she has broadened her game some. She's 36. There's always the possibility that her speed is going to start dropping off at some point. I mean, straw weight for women, I think of as kind of like featherweight or lightweight for men. It's, you know, it's, it's where losing, when your top gear starts slipping, it starts to show up pretty quickly. There's a possibility that's the case, but even if that is the case, I, I would take 80% of Angela Hill to win pretty easily over uh, Ashley Yoder. Yoder is better than her record looks in the UFC, but this is not the matchup to show it. I don't foresee a finish. Uh, you know, Hill is a kind of a relentless machine. She she will land 150 strikes on you, but she's not going to knock you out unless she cuts you or you really just give it to her like Cyphers did. But give me Angela Hill in a pretty dominant decision over uh, Ashley Yoder. Next up, we have a high-stakes bantamweight matchup as Pedro Munoz takes on Jimmy Rivera. Munoz, the 34-year-old Brazilian, is 18-5 with one no contest overall. He is 8-5 with one no contest since joining the UFC. He comes into this fight on a, a two-fight skid, having lost an ultra-close split decision to Frankie Edgar in the headliner of UFC on ESPN 15 last August. And then before that, lost a unanimous decision to Aljamain Sterling all the way back at UFC 238 in uh, June of 2019. He will face Rivera. The 31-year-old New Jersey native is 23-4 and overall. He is 7-3 and in the UFC. He fought most recently last July at UFC on ESPN 13 uh, against a fellow Bantamweight in Cody Stamen. Nonetheless, both of them up a weight class and won a unanimous decision. Before that, he had lost back-to-back -back fights to current Bantamweight champ Peter Yan and current top contender Aljamain Sterling. Rivera is the slight favorite going into this. He is available around minus 145 right now, where you can get Munoz on the comeback at plus 125. How great is this fight, Keith? And how do you see it playing out? So, I don't, I don't like rematches. Like I, it's not something that you can make other matches. I usually prefer that, um, but this is one that I'm pretty happy about uh, because they match up very well against each other. Before we get into the styles, can I ask you, do you remember who you scored the fight for, Munoz or Edgar? I do not, okay. but because I, I, I don't even know if I scored it officially round by round, but I remember sure. afterwards thinking that Munoz had won. Yeah. And being I scored kind of surprised. A, yeah, I don't remember how I scored it either, but I, I did give it to Munoz. I thought he won, um, and I was surprised that Edgar won it. Anyways, move on. It wasn't a robbery or anything like that. It just I thought Munoz won. Uh, Munoz, he's not a great athlete. I don't think it's surprising anybody by saying that. I don't think he would say that. But he makes up for his lack of athleticism by being pound for pound one of the most insanely tough guys in the entire UFC, the entire MMA. Uh, he just marches forward at a tremendous pace, expecting to catch you with something. Uh, he loves a brawl. And and if you engage him in a brawl, 
you're going to lose. <laughs> um, Cody Garbrandt learned that the hard way. Uh, he is hittable because of obviously that style, but also he squares up, squares up a little bit, kind of throwing a little technique out the window. But he can be. So I said all that, but he can be technical, um, especially from like the. He's not an outranger, but like a mid range. Not not the pocket, but like a mid range. Just just probably like his opponent's kicking range. Uh, uh, got a good stinging jab. And I wish he'd throw it more because it's a good tool of his. Um, hard, hard kicks to the body, hard kicks to the to the calf uh, to the calf kicks. Uh, he doesn't check leg kicks though. Aljamain Sterling like really tore up his his legs in the in their fight. Nice power, good power, uh, and and a and a good chin. Like if you have power, you know a lot of times a heavyweight. If you have power, you need the chin to hold up so you can land it. You don't need it as much at bantamweight. But it's nice to have the chin to back it up so he can step in, throw the big shot, and be the ability to eat it. Because going back to the Sterling fight, Sterling teed off on him. And he kept going the entire time, um, going forward, made it somewhat competitive. He doesn't grapple offensively enough, which is a flaw because he's a good grappler. And they get probably hasn't been since maybe the Rob Font fight where you saw him kind of initiate a lot of grappling. Uh, but he's really good at winning scrambles, um, and if you take him down, he'll he'll get up really fast. The only time we really see him grapple now is when he's looking for that guillotine, which is really good, like one of the best guillotines. Move over to uh, Jimmy R- Rivera. Uh, this guy is he's he's well rounded. Um, got some tight tight boxing. Uh, really really nice whip on his shots. Uh, keeps he keeps his right hand absolutely glued to his chin, so it's kind of hard to kind of come over the top from that. Um, other than if you can kind of get him while, while he's circling out, like uh, Pechayan was able to do. Uh, he he loves targeting the body. I like that about him. Like he made it. Um, like he, you could tell the, he's spent a lot of times boxing because. It's not just something like he adds in like it's 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 a top priority of his. Um, his I would say his stinging power. I wouldn't say his fight ending power. Now he can land shots, especially early in his UFC career, uh, but it's more um, stunning. Like he'll stun you with a shot. Uh, we'll catch a kick to kind of blast his free hand. Like he's willing to to do that. Like kind of let you try to kick him to try to time it. Um, and his calf kicks. His calf kicks were good. I mean, he was uh, he was hurting. Patreon in their fight with the calf kicks. Chin Chin is a little um, worrisome because similar to Pedro Munoz, he squares up sometimes. He can be dragged into a brawl, which I'm hoping happens, and that would be a fun exchange if, if, if Rivera and, and Munoz uh, throw down um, because he also has some really nice whip on his shots. Um, chin, chin is a little concerning. Um, I mean, he was knocked out bad by Marlon Moraes. He was hurt multiple times by Patreon, put on, put down by Patreon, which is a big difference to me why he can't really engage in the brawl like Munoz can because Munoz's chin, we haven't seen it. Like I don't, I don't think he's – he has not been stopped in his career, and I don't remember him even like being dropped. I'm sure he has been, but I, I just don't remember it. Um, Jimmy Rivera is a good wrestler, um, both in close – if it's a grinding battle where he's pressing him against the cage, um, yeah, he's very built, physically built. He can press you against the cage, dirty box you, 
Um, he can uh, he can jump on your hips. But I also like that he can counter wrestle. We saw a lot of counter wrestling where he was like using Cody Stamen's offensive wrestling against him. He was like hitting switches and um, and like slide bys and stuff. Good in scrambles, hard to take down. Also has a guillotine. These guys remind me a lot of each other, which is why this is such a close fight. Um, stylistically, this is my favorite fight on the card. I think it's a coin toss. Um, it's probably the. F- I, I probably should have picked this as my fight of the night, but <laughs> I used it too early. Uh, I might. Have, I might have. I blew my load early in the card, <laughs> so I let letting the uh, letting the fight of the night one out because I probably should have picked this one. Um, I don't know if either guy has a major advantage anywhere, which makes it so tough. Munoz' pace could be the difference, but Rivera's probably the technically more sound uh, striker and and probably the technically more sound wrestler. If it was five, a five-round fight, I would feel a lot more confidence in Munoz. But because it's only three, I'm going to lean so ever slightly to the more technical guy and go with Rivera, and I think Rivera wins as close as possible. I say it's another split decision win for him. You basically just said everything that I was going to say better than I could. So (laughs) I'm continually surprised by how short and compact Rivera is for the division. It was funny when he fought Cody Stamen because Stamen looked a full weight class bigger than him, even though they're technically from the same weight class and both moving up to the next weight class. Rivera's just, he's a short, stocky guy. And obviously that's not everything because if being shorter mattered that much, he wouldn't have won 20 fights in a row. But in particular, it it, it seems to negate his his disadvantages in height and, and in reach because it's not like he's got super long arms either. When he's fighting someone who consistently comes at him, consistently coming at you is, that's, I mean, that could be on Pedro Munoz's, like that could be his vanity license plate. You know, uh, that's that's what he does. He's he's a, a hyper aggressive guy, and I think it'll work to Rivera's advantage again. I think it, it makes both his striking and his wrestling work better when he has a fighter that he knows is going to come forward. This one's razor close. I will pick this as my fight of the night. Uh, just it's going to be a blast. Probably won't end in a finish, but it should just be a complete banger. I expect various swings of momentum. While I'm not picking a finish, I could easily see both guys getting rocked, getting hurt, uh, and that's good. I mean, uh, a fight that tells us a story and delivers, you know, 250 uh, strikes is a good contender for fight of the night. As far as the winner, I was leaning ever so slightly towards Rivera. Now, just to be contrarian, I am going to swing back towards uh, Munoz. But I, this is just unless some guys made shocking uh, regression since each of their last fights, this is a coin flip. Give me Munoz uh, by decision, maybe even a splitter. There'll be a round in, in there that none of us can agree on. Our feature main card bout of the evening is in the women's flyweight division, where Montana De La Rosa takes on Mayra Bueno Silva. De La Rosa, the 26-year-old, is. 11 and 6 overall. She is 4 and 2 in the UFC. 
She fought most recently last September, losing a unanimous decision to Viviane Araujo at UFC Fight Night Overeem versus Sakai. Previous to that, she defeated Mauro Romero Barella by unanimous decision at UFC Fight Night Anderson versus Blahovich 2 back on February 15th. She'll be taking on Bueno Silva. The 29-year-old Brazilian is 7-1 overall. She is 2-1 since joining the UFC off of the first season of Dana White's Contender Series Brazil. Most recently, she defeated Mauro Romero Barella by first-round armbar submission at UFC Fight Night Covington versus Woodley last September. Previous to that, she lost a unanimous decision to Marina Moroz at UFC Fight Night Lee versus Oliveira at, in March. Mayra Bueno Silva is a slight favorite. She is out there around minus 145, minus 150, where De La Rosa is available at plus 125 uh, to plus 130. I, I think this the, this one is going to play into Montana De La Rosa's hands quite a bit. She is somebody who, whether she's winning or losing, but especially if, if she's losing, uh, she wants to take things to the ground. Like, that clearly is, is her safe place. Uh, she's a good grappler. She's a physically big, strong woman. Both of them are big and strong for 125, but I think De La Rosa is probably just a little bit bigger and stronger. And it makes me look at uh, at Silva, where defensive wrestling, if she's, I mean, if she's had any holes, it's been defensive wrestling. She beat Jillian Robertson by first round armbar, but before that, Robertson got her to the ground pretty easily, and Robertson's takedowns have been a problem for her. So, I mean, for somebody who is not a great takedown artist by divisional standards, to get pretty easy takedowns on her is not a, a great sign. I expect that uh, De La Rosa is pro probably going to be able to uh, to get her down, and she's not. De La Rosa has not really been susceptible to uh, submission attempts by people not named Mackenzie Dern. And even the Dern fight was five years ago when De La Rosa was like, 20, 21 years old and really just learning her craft. Yeah, I, I expect uh, De La Rosa to win this one. Probably uh, multiple takedowns, you know, takedowns in every round. And it'll be a question of whether Mayra Bueno Silva is trying to throw up submission attempts from her back or is trying to get back to her feet and, and resume striking. But uh, give me De La Rosa between those two possible outcomes. De La Rosa by decision. Yeah, so Delarosa has some losses on her career, but when you really dig into her record, that took some really stiff competition. I, I think I said this last time when she was supposed to fight, but didn't get to. I mean, her losses are to Vivian Arrojo, Andrea Lee, Nico Montagna, Cynthia Calveo, and Mackenzie Dern. Like, all those girls are quality fighters. Uh, she's only 25, but I want to kind of reiterate what I said about Jillian Robinson. Delarosa has improved her striking. And I've kind of given her a pass, like I had Robinson, but it's time to really start seeing some improvements before I start writing her off as a one-dimensional fighter. She's very uncomfortable in the feet. She's she's not Robinson where she's got to rush to get it right to the ground, but you know, ultimately she wants to get to the ground because um, she, she's not comfortable. She's she's a counter striker, um, has a long kind of slow jab. Uh, she did show some power. She dropped Maria Borello in her last fight with her overhand right. Um, I think it was more of a lucky shot than than uh, a good technique. Uh, she throws punches straight down the pipe, but her hand speed is kind of slow. She stays very tense. Uh, she lunges. 
Um, she she bounces her head off the center line. Like you could tell she does some boxing drills, but there's not a lot of fluidity in it. She does have a lot of kicks, though sometimes they're they're naked, uh, not set up, uh, leaving her open to counters. She's heavy on her front leg, leaving her open to leg kicks. She really struggled with the speed of Orojo, uh, though I do give her credit. She she was able to. She's tough. Like she fought through her lack of technique and kind of actually um, started touching Orojo. She's a good wrestler though. She's got some good entries. She's relentless when she's on the hip to finish it. Good at like turning the corner, uh, using angles. She also has those long legs that she can use to get like back trips. Uh, on her drives, uh, good at winning scrambles. She got, she's good at getting the back, but even better at like when she has her legs in. Those long legs help her like locking body locks and stuff like that. She's a submission threat. She's got eight submissions on her record. Uh, though she can be a little wild looking for the sub, like loose position, kind of chasing a sub. Like you say, you know, don't chase a uh, a knockout. It's the same with the sub. Don't chase a sub that's not them. Move over to Bueno Silva, kickboxer, uh, switches stances. Walks down her opponents a little, little bit flat-footed. Uh, she has some tight boxing. Doesn't throw a lot of volume until she finds her range, and then she unloads with a combo. Good power, though. She kind of similar. I just said she, she chases the knockout, which won't be there if you chase the knockout. So just letting go. A lot of teep kicks. She'll throw in a lot of spinning attacks, um, even if not this being back fists, being elbows. Uh, she's good in the clinch because she's so physically strong. Um, though she's a weak defensive wrestler, Marta Moroz took her down and submitted. Um, didn't submit her, but took her down. She struggled to get up. She did get a submission in her last fight, so it's something we might see. She might be throwing up submissions. To me, this is an easy breakdown when it comes to prediction. This is just a classic striker versus grappler. I'll go with the long history of the grappler winning, and I don't expect to be much different in this one. Give me De La Rosa to take Bueno down, kind of rinse and repeat all three rounds and, and win a decision. Maybe even get a, a submission late, but I'm going to say she probably just wins by decision. Um, I'm pretty confident in that pick, too. With that, we come to our co-main event of the evening, a light heavyweight matchup featuring Nikita Krilov and Magomed Ankalaev. And quite frankly, it is hard for me to believe that these two fighters are the same age. Krilov. The 28-year-old Ukrainian is 27 and 7 overall. He is 8 and 5 across two separate stints with the UFC, having gone 6 and 3 uh, after joining the UFC back in 2014, then requesting his release and taking a couple of fights in 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 Russia, then coming back and he is 2 and 2 since returning. He has defeated Johnny Walker and Ovin St. Prue while losing to Glover Teixeira and Jan Blachowicz. Ankalaev, the 28-year-old Dagestani, is 14 and 1 overall. He is 6 and 1 in the UFC and could be argued that he has won all but about 10 seconds of his entire career. He lost his UFC debut to Paul Craig via a shocking triangle choke submission with 1 second left on the clock, has bounced back from that to win 5 straight over Martin Procneome, Clidson Abreu, Dolce Lungiambula, and back-to-back fights over uh, Iwan Kudalaba. Ankalaev is a sturdy favorite here. He is minus 340, where Krilov is around plus 280, 
plus 285 as the underdog. Keith, how do you see this one uh, playing out? Well, I'm intrigued by this one. Um, Krilov is hard to get a grasp on him because, to me, he's so inconsistent. One fight, he looks like a title challenger. The next fight, he looks like uh, someone who shouldn't be even close to top 15, like a bust. Uh, he's athletic. He's well-rounded. He's got some good movement on the feet, fast hands. Uh, he makes the mistake of dropping hands a little bit, especially as the fight goes on. Uh, a lot of kicks. He's kind of uses them well to kind of keep his distance. He's a solid wrestler, good entries. He's a good grappler. Um, though I think in the grappling is where I have the hardest time reading him because it, his grappling might be a little overrated. So he's got 15 career submissions, which is obviously good. Uh, he almost caught Glover Teixeira in, uh, like two fights ago in a submission, which is an extremely impressive thing to do. I think we've talked about we both look at Glover at this point in his career. It's like very good grappler, more of a grappler than a, than a boxer. He kind of like switches roles. However, in like in other fights, he's looked terrible on the ground. Uh, it wasn't that recently. Like he he get, made a comeback against Glover Teixeira and got the win, but like Glover Teixeira uh, took him down and almost sent it himself. He was out wrestling him. He he got them. Uh, 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 oh, I'm sorry, I'm messing up a second. OSP, I mean, OSP yeah. in the fight against OSP, he he made a comeback against. OSP took him down, was out wrestling him, had him mounted at one point. So, like, what is he? Is he the guy that was doing extremely well in the grappling against Glover Teixeira? Or is he the guy that was, like, early in the fight was losing pretty convincingly to OSP? And even when he's winning, like, he makes mistakes. Like, he'll have a fighter's back, and then he'll, like, ride on his back way too high. Like he did against Johnny Walker, was like riding his back and then fell off. Um, the this times, you know, he's on bottom and he pops right up immediately. And then the other times he's stuck on bottom for like three minutes. So it's really hard. It's he's he's a frustrating person, you know, to really assess him. Now moving over to Ankalaev, uh, Ankalaev's taking a big step up in competition. Um, he's big for the weight class. He's well rounded, southpaw, technically sound striker, works behind a jab. Beautiful leg kicks. He likes his push kick, his deep kicks. Great high kick. I mean, go back to the first fight against Kudalaba. I think we mentioned this on the last preview. His his high kick was not missing. He just kept throwing it and just kept landing it. Uh, some of that has to do with Kudalaba decided not to move his head in his own stupidity. Or, or maybe a little bit of rocks. I shouldn't say stupidity. A little bit of rocks. Um, the only technical flaw that I really found on him in the striking is that he, he needs to lower his chin. He keeps his chin a little high, but that happens a lot when someone is a kicker, like people who kick naturally stand up a little higher and the chin actually, but not naturally come up in contrast to someone who, who's focuses more a boxing heavy striking game. They're the ones who tuck their chin a little bit, you know, should, you know, that's rule number one in the boxing gym. Uh, his clinch is strong due to you know being a taller fighter, being a very strong guy. He can just muscle you against the fence. Uh, does very well to wear you out against the fence. He kind of does use his head positioning really good, kind of move your head where he wants with his head uh, to control you, to frustrate you. He'll just drop down in the hips, just pull your legs out, take you down. 
as I said earlier, he, you know, to the um, Kuramagomedov, he's got a stereotype Russian top game. He's smothers you. He, he'll find one limb and isolate it. Uh, if you try to take him down, good luck. It's, it's going to be hard. He's going to beat you up uh, on the ground and pound. Um, so as far as a prediction, Kurlov is crafty and can be a tough out at times. But if you've listened to me and Ben do this recap show, you probably knew where I'm taking this fight. I'm wicked high on Ankalaev. I think he dominates this fight. I think he gets takedowns. I think he controls on top. He lands ground and pound. I don't know if he's going to stop. You know, I am saying he's going to stop. I'm going to say he stops Krylov uh, in the third round TKO from ground and pound. Great. I'm glad you you brought up uh, Krylov's kind of unpredictability and wildness. It's something that even when he's been successful, he's never really gotten away from. As you pointed out, even in fights that he wins, there are just weird lapses in tactics and fight IQ that he wins just because it happened that his opponent wasn't able to take advantage of them. He sometimes, on his best night, he looks like a top 10 fighter on talent, but he's currently kind of sitting around the bottom of the, at least the Sherdog top 15, because... He keeps losing fights. There's no shame in losing to Glover Teixeira or Dion Blachowicz. Obviously, they're two of the top three guys in that division right now. But the OSP fight, he won it, but he was losing until OSP gassed out pretty much worse than I've ever seen a fighter south of heavyweight gas out. It was one of the more shocking displays of poor cardio I've, I've ever seen in the UFC, at least in the modern UFC. So I, I can I can see where some people might say, okay, there's a possibility here because Krilov is wild and can put out amazing bursts of offense, both on the ground and on the feet at the right time. And hey, Ankalaev once, you know, lost a fight with one second left where he'd been dominating. I'm just gonna say that is not Ankalaev. And and to embrace that and say, well, he's always vulnerable. Is to miss the point. You're you're missing the point, and you're gonna miss the train. He's he's never gonna lose another fight like that. And outside of that ten seconds, it's not just that he is a an athletic big light heavyweight with a complete skill set. Is he is airtight? I I said off the top. You can argue that that's the only ten seconds of his UFC career that he's lost. So in fact, he is the absolute worst kind of opponent for Nikita Krylov. Because he's a guy who will take advantage of the lapses, who will put him under constant pressure, and is unlikely to give Krilov openings to do the the you know the wild things that he likes to do. It's not much of a thing to call something my lock of the night when a guy is a minus three forty favorite. So I will say it is it is my lock of the night that Ankalaev gets a finish in this one. Uh, give me Magomed Ankalaev by second round stoppage. And it'll, again, be the kind of either ground and pound or he turns his back and you give him the the mercy tap rear naked choke instead. But Ankalaev in this one big time, while I think Krilov is a top 10 quality light heavyweight on his best night, I think Magomed Ankalaev is a top 10 light heavyweight on talent right now. And I think he's going to start showing it pretty soon. Uh, he, he's on his way up these rankings. Yeah, just when I thought I was like 
in the driver's seat of the Ankalaya hype train. Ben is Jen just Ben just pushes me right out of that seat and he's like, move over. You can play. <laughs> you, you know. I had to be wrong a couple of times before I figured it out. It just you know, he's not going to lose again until it's to like a top five guy, no. and then we'll we'll kind of see what happens. I think after this fight, there's going to be a lot of hype on him, and like everyone who's listening, he, like you better jump on because me and Benny ain't, ain't making much of it. We've been driving this train for a while. Yes, that brings us to the main event. A heavyweight matchup between Jairzinho Rosenstrike and Surreal Gan. Rosenstrike, the 32-year-old from Suriname, is 11-1 overall. He is 5-1 since joining the UFC uh, at the beginning of 2019. Most recently, he defeated Junior Dos Santos by second-round knockout last August at UFC 252. Previous to that, he took a quick first-round knockout loss to uh, our next heavyweight title challenger, Francis Ngannou, losing in just 20 seconds at UFC 249. Before that, his UFC run began with knockout victories over Alistair Overeem, Andre Arlovsky, Alan Crowder, and Junior Albini. With the exception of the Overeem uh, victory, which happened via a grisly cut in the closing seconds of the fight. All the others took place within the first six minutes of action. He'll be taking on Gan. The 30-year-old Frenchman is a perfect 7-0. and The last four of those in the UFC. His most recent victory, also over uh, Dos Santos, was on December 12th at UFC 256. He won that by second round TKO. Previous to that, he defeated Tanner Bozer, Dante Mays, and Rafael Pessoa in the UFC. Gunn is a substantial favorite here. He is out there around minus 260, minus 265, where Rosenstrike is available at plus 225 right now. I think other than being heavyweights and uh Strikers, by preference, these guys are pretty different, actually. Um, Rosenstrike obviously, uh, you know, presents as a kickboxer. He was a kickboxer, but like his, his, his he fights like a brawler to me. Whereas uh, Gone, he's just he definitely stands up straighter, but he's a straight puncher. Uh, like real snappy kicks. Interesting thing about Gon. I mean, he he came into the UFC as a th- he was three and zero, and he'd only been pro for like, I like a year, if that. When I, yeah, his first fight in the UFC was like almost a year to the day after his professional debut. That is way too soon for almost any fighter, even at heavyweight, where we know that the the gateway to being UFC level and then the gateway to being a contender are much more forgiving than they are in some other divisions. But kind of like I said about Tiago Moises before, uh, Gon fights with a certain poise. He's like, he, he fights like a person who's been fighting for a lot longer than he has been fighting in MMA for a lot longer than he has. There's just a certain calm about him. Uh, he doesn't freak out when his opponent is hurt. 
and it looks like he can get he can get the finish. He doesn't freak out when he faces adversity. A lot of times, when you get a prospect coming through who's been knocking everybody out in the first round or knocking everybody out in three minutes, you see them start to hyperventilate, even if it just gets to the second round. Like, what do I do now? Uh, he's he's never shown any of that. He's shown a willingness to flex his ground game almost from the, the very beginning. I mean, he, he has a heel hook submission in, in the UFC. Another big difference between these guys is going to be a big difference, pun fully intended. They're both big dudes, but Gon is bigger. Even though they'll probably both weigh in within, you know, eight or 10 pounds of each other, in terms of lean muscle mass, I, I, I bet Gon's like a 25-pound heavier guy. He's taller, he's longer, he fights longer. I like both of these guys. I think Rosenstrike, I, I, I hesitate to call anybody overrated. But I think he may have come to the into the UFC and had even a little more hype and a little more sizzle than otherwise merited just because his first couple of wins were so spectacular. But I think uh, Gon's ceiling is higher, and I think his now is, is higher. I... There's always a chance that Rosenstrike can just come forward lobbing bombs and catch Gon with something. Uh, you know, Gon's a, a pretty upright fighter. Like, I'm sure Rosenstrike could find his chin, but I don't see it happening. I think Gon is going to get the better of the striking exchanges. And I'm I'm not going to pick this dude to get a submission, but I could see it happening. But I, I'll expect Gon to hurt Rosenstrike for the action to go to the ground and for him either to just finish with some hellacious ground and pound or if he feels like it, you know, grabbing an arm triangle choke or even a heel hook. Who knows? But give me Surreal Gon by first round finish. Wow. So I'm not going to give my pick yet, but I want to say this. You, we usually see things very similar when we do our breakdowns, uh, when we study fighters. Uh, I have a different feel for Rosenstrick than you do. Um, I don't. I don't see him as a as a brawler. I see him um, sometimes kind of gun shy, to it, which is weird. Um, to me, he he's a very loose and composed uh, striker. Very experienced kickboxer. Doesn't throw a lot of tells. Not a lot of preloading up. Uh, he's a counter striker and and. Like I said, he could be gun shy. We saw that against Overeem, and even in the beginning of the JDS fight, he was a little gun shy, which is really surprising considering he's the, the the. No matter how you view him, whether you kind of view him how I look at him, or if you as Ben looks at him, he still has way more offensive tools at this point of his career than JDS has. Like he shouldn't have been gun shy. Of that um, he's patient to a fault. Now, when he throws, he's accurate. Um, he throws straight shots down the pipe. He's got a. He's got a power jab. He doesn't even have a, like a busy jab. He's a power like he hurts you with a jab, uh, and he's got crushing power. I mean, that shovel uppercut that he landed on Overeem's knocked Overeem's lip into like the seventh row. Uh, uh, he's got hard kicks. He, he really turns his hips over. Uh, he turns his hips over quick without even seeing it. Like it's not a, it's not exaggerated like some other guys do. Uh, he targets the calf. I, um, he makes a mistake similar to Ankalaev, where he keeps his chin high. But like I said about Ankalaev, that happens with people who are more of a kickboxing game where they one they're going to turn the hips over, but also you you can hide your chin a lot better with the big boxing gloves than you can in MMA. 
Um, as far as grappling, we don't see anything offensive from him. And his defensive wrestling, you know, from the last time we saw it, is is horrendous. Uh, move. That's why I was surprised Overeem didn't push a much heavier wrestling game against him. I think he could have won that. Move over to Gon. Gon is an absolutely great athlete. Very high output striker. Very quick. Very elusive. Um, for such an inexperienced fighter, he's got good, great footwork. The way he um, can circle away both sides. Um, can fight from either stance. Uh, though he probably prefers the southpaw stance a little bit. He's accurate. He uses feints wells. I like that. Like I always talk about the jab not being this hidden gem from MMA. He does. He does a double jab. He'll he likes he'll hit you twice with it, uh, which shows you know his boxing experience. I love that he changes stance mid combo from different angles, which we've talked about from the guys like Israel Asanya, which we'll be talking about next week. Does. Uh, beautiful overhand right. He throws combos. Good power. Um, his body shots are crushing. Kicks everywhere. Front kick, leg kick, body kick. Uh, I love his step in knees. I love his vision. You can see he's very uh, comfortable in there. Uh, but he can, all, as you mentioned, you, you spent a lot of time on it. He can also take the fight to the ground. He's got decent takedowns. Ground and pound. He's a submission threat. So... I like Gone. So as a prediction, I like Gone as much as anybody does. Uh, everyone's ready to crown him. I'm in the same camp. That said, I think the lines are way off. He, I don't think he should be a th- nearly a three to one favorite. To me, this should be a. I think he should be a favorite, but I think it should be close to a pick. Him. Like I could see. I think he should be like negative one thirty, negative one thirty five, and. Rosenstruck plus 140-ish. Rosenstruck has a lot more experience uh, in kickboxing. Um, he's a very good kickboxer. And when you have that power, like we – like you would have thought the line that we saw last week – I mean, the line would move based on what we saw last week. When you have the kind of power that Rosenstruck has, similar to Derek Lewis, all you have to do is land one. I don't care who it is. You know, will it be hard to land one against someone who's as elusive as gone? Yeah, I think so. But if he does land, I won't be surprised like one bit. Um, if I'm a betting man, not it's not my pick, but if I'm betting, I'm betting underdog or pass. That says I don't like the inactivity of Rosenstruck. Like I think Gon could win a decision just by working at an outside game. He's a little like you mentioned. You talked about how he's he is physically bigger. I could see him like just working outside game. He's a lot more athletic. He. Um, where he could just land from the outside and move. But also, as you mentioned, I thought you're a break. So we, we view Rosenstruck differently, but I don't think we view the outcome of how Gain can win differently. Because as you mentioned, there is a huge gap on the ground already where he could expose that. So this, I think there's more avenues. I think there's only one real avenue for, for Rosenstruck, and that's to land a big shot. But I see the possibility of him landing much bigger than you like I could see it I see it as like 40% chance 45% chance like I am not confident God. you're very confident in I want to take gone based on the volume and obviously the if, if he turns it into a wrestling match I'll feel way more confident you know but I'm gonna take him but I'm gonna be nervous the whole time waiting for <laughs> Rosa Strick to land a shot at any time so give me gone 
Uh, it's five rounds, so I think he probably can get him out of there. I'll say later. I'm going to say like fourth round. I say he gets maybe he finally gets him down and TKOs him with Grand Pound. Like, give me gone fourth round decision. But like I said, if I'm betting, I'm betting Rose Stroke. And if I'm if I'm betting at those odds, I might as well throw in him by knockout too to get my odds even better. There you go. Schillen and Duffy's picks for all 12 fights from UFC Fight Night 186, Rosenstrike versus Gunn. We hope you enjoy the fights this Saturday. Immediately or shortly after the main event, join us uh, through the SureDog.com front page or directly on the SureDog YouTube page for a live recap. Uh, We will take your questions and comments if you want to send them in. And until then, uh, for Keith Chillin, I'm Ben Duffy. Thanks for listening and enjoy the fights.